0: WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, February 25th, 2024. I am Rob Jerisline, Managing Editor of Outdoor News and the host here every week from 5 to 6 p.m. Looking forward to spending the next hour with our dedicated listeners to the station talking about outdoor topics. Lots. uh It's a transition time. I mean, it, it's normally not a transition time this early, but I don't think anyone... <laughs> can dispute what we're seeing out there we're talking 60 degrees tomorrow and maybe uh, a couple other days this week you know when we had this cold snap in january or the warm i'm sorry the warming trend in in january i thought well you know weird things can happen right uh we could have a deep freeze in february that holds through march and you get a lot of snow and and we could still have a tough winter i tell you what when you get these kind of temperatures the last week of february it it pretty much feels like it's over right folks i mean yeah we could get some snowstorms but in terms of really cold weather that's going to freeze you know freeze the lakes up hard it's just it's fighting against these super long days There's just too much daylight there's just too many hours to warm up the landscape there's no snow out there there's the ice pack is has deteriorated and it's it's really hard to build that back up this late in the year so definitely a, a strange year you know it's sports show season there's not a lot to do outside uh, we we do have rabbit and squirrel hunting i know i've talked about that a little bit that runs through this thursday you get a bonus day of rabbit and squirrels here in february 2024 and we're going to have tony peterson with us at the bottom of the hour to talk about that tony long time outdoors writer uh, up in this part of the country and um does, does a lot of different things out of doors. He's going to be fun to touch base with. Uh, another thing you could be doing right now is building wood duck boxes. Uh, the fact that the lakes are going out early and there's not a lot of snowpack out there means that the waterfowl are going to be moving up the Mississippi Flyway even earlier this year, which means we're going to have wood ducks looking for nesting sites probably sooner rather than later. And he, uh, an old war horse is going to join me. I'll tell you what, it's hard to find someone to talk wood duck boxes. There's not as many guys that are into that anymore. There was a group called the Wood Duck Society, led by just a gem of a man named Roger Strand for a number of years, who was always kind of the go-to source on wood duck bo- boxes. Roger lived well into his 80s. I, I, you might recall, I believe it was last summer he passed away. We had his nephew Mark Strand on uh, to talk about uh, Roger's passing, and since we lost Roger, it's it's kind of hard to find a source to talk wood duck boxes. There's not a lot of people doing it as dedicated as they used to anymore. But old uh, John Mulchenberg is going to join us. There's a lot to talk about with John, so that should be fun. Um, sports show season is underway. Maybe I'll, I'll swing back to that a little bit later. We'll talk about some of the upcoming sports shows. Uh, and you know, I always like to kick off with some sort of news topic. We had uh, midweek this past week, we had the uh, the Minnesota Youth uh, Clay Target League, uh, the organizers of that league, uh, pretty upset about some legislation here at the state capitol in St. Paul uh, that would, it's kind of a grab bag involving lead tackle and lead ammunitions, shotgun shells. Um, it's kind of all over the place. Dennis Anderson also wrote about the topic here today. Uh, and what the bill would do is it pretty much ban most lead ammunition and a lot of lead tackle, and the Clay Target League folks, who I know pretty well, John Nelson over there, sent out a press release. I think it was actually even late Tuesday. Uh, we had a story up at OutdoorNews.com, I think, by Thursday, and, and like I say, Dennis writing about it in the Star Tribune today, uh, pointing out that uh, you know banning this lead ammunition would really – Increase the cost for all these kids to participate in this youth clay target league. This this clay target league has been a massive, massive success. It's a it's a great story. You had a lot of small town shooting ranges and even some near the metro that that weren't doing real well. They weren't getting a lot of people through, and then this clay target league came through, and now these these ranges have a lot of uh, a lot of kids shooting. Uh, it's an introduced a lot of kids to uh, the outdoor sports. Uh, to to shotgunning and then you know sometimes that leads into upland game hunting and, uh, and other forms of hunting. A lot of people might not know how, <laughs> like just incredibly safe it is. Now, you think you think shotguns, you think guns, you think ammunition. Uh, it, you know, you worry about uh, you know with, obviously with all the news stories out there about g- gun incidents. But uh, the Clay Target League, in their press release, pointing out they've had over fifty thousand students participate in the league since two thousand and one. Never had an accident. Never had an injury, despite shooting shotguns over a hundred million times. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. I don't think there's any other sport in the state that's got that kind of a safety record. So it's it's, and according to their press release, like thirty nine percent of the kids in this league don't participate in any other uh, sports or I don't know if it's any other activities, period. So, you know, it, if, if the price of ammunition really goes up as a result of requiring non-toxics, you, you know, it could potentially have a, have a big impact on, on some of these kids and some of their families. Now, it's a tough issue because we all want lead out of the environment, right? And, I, and it's something I've advocated for. I, th- I think in general we want to move towards... Eliminating lead ammunition. I I don't use it myself, uh, really, for anything anymore. I guess if I was clay target shooting at a range, I would, but I don't use it for hunting. I use copper bullets for big game. Uh, Dennis Anderson writing about this today, and 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 Dennis, you know, pretty much defending the league, saying you know this is probably not legislation we want to pass. And and like I, I as I've already said, it's it's a challenging one because. You, you, you go back, you know, it's, it's, it's not new understanding that lead is, is a toxic element uh, and that we want to generally remove it from the environment. We, we got rid of it for waterfowl hunting in the early 80s, I believe, and that's a good thing. We don't want to scatter this stuff in our waterways. You know, ducks go down and they feed and they would pick up the lead pellet, uh, pellets and then they'd, <clears throat> they'd have them in their crops when they're digesting their food and they they grind up that lead and they die of lead poisoning. No one wants that. We have a lot of eagles that die of lead poisoning, but is but is our lead bullets affecting the population of eagles out there? No, they're really not. The population of eagles continues to increase. The population of other birds uh, continues to increase. We shouldn't be using eagles or um, tundra swan, or, or trumpeter swans as Trojan birds to ban lead because the populations of these birds are increasing. So that said, I, I would support you know maybe a more nuanced approach towards trying to phase lead out. But this this the way this legislation is written now, uh, like I said, it's kind of all over the place. A little bit like this commentary. My apologies. I I don't I mostly agree with Dennis Anderson's take that I don't believe I would support it as written. Even though I I mostly advocate for let's continue to phase out lead ammunition. I think. I think that's that's where we want to be in twenty thirty years. I'm just not sure we want to be there today, and I'm not sure it's having an environmental effect that demands that we ban it right now, or 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 a human health effect. <clears throat> with that, I think uh, I will grab a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk uh, wood ducks, a nice uh, a nice benign topic. Uh, wood duck houses. It's tis the season for building those. We're going to talk with John Mulchamber. So don't go away you got more WCCO Outdoors coming at you after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Drieslein, very happy to be with you on this Sunday, February 25th. Last day of the inland waters, walleye, pike, and bass fishing seasons. Yeah, there's not a lot of ice out there necessarily to be targeting those fish anyway after today. But pan fishing is always real popular after uh, that walleye closure. Uh, So yeah, if if you like to fish walleyes in inland waters, well, you got a few minutes left, a few hours left until uh, May 11th. That's when the uh, the regular walleye opener will kick off. That's always a big date here in Minnesota. Uh, When I wrap up at the top of the hour, stay tuned for 60 minutes at six o'clock. Then from seven to nine, Joe Tamburino with the weekend wind down. Great content here on WCCO all night. We talked a little bit earlier about how the uh, the ice is going out early. Uh, there's not much snow out there. Winter is winding down. That means the waterfowl spring migration is probably pushing north already. Uh, next week, I think we're going to spend some more time talking about uh, snow geese and uh, the, the fact that the snow goose hunt is already open uh, as soon as the birds get here. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, a really beautiful bird. Some say it's our our most beautiful duck, and it's one that we have right here in Minnesota, the wood duck. And uh, an old war horse is going to join us now to talk about waterfowl, and his name is John Mulkenberg. John has been a longtime, dedicated volunteer for a number of waterfowl organizations here in Minnesota. And, uh, John, are you with me? How are you doing, old friend?
1: Good, Rob. How are you this evening?
0: Oh, fantastic. How can you not? Uh, how can you not love this weather? Uh, what do you think it means? Uh, and, and John, you're still the president, I understand, of the Wood Duck Society. I know it's it's kind of a semi-defunct organization. You still got a, a fairly robust Facebook page. If folks are interested in wood ducks, they can go to Facebook and search Wood Duck Society. What do you make of this spring? Do you think we're going to be seeing wood ducks uh, pretty pretty soon?
1: I really do. I uh, in fact, I talked to some of the guys in the uh, southern part of the state. They're already seeing some of them along the open waters, rivers and creeks and things like that. So uh, who knows? This might be one of the earliest uh, seasons that we've ever seen, it, you know, have wood ducks here that early.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, a neat thing about, we, we associate, I think we put a lot of emphasis on the fall migration. Obviously, that's when a lot of the hunting occurs. Uh, as folks go into winter, they like to watch the birds head south, and I think we we sometimes forget about the spring migration when the birds are coming back north. I don't know; maybe people are thinking about yard work or whatever. But waterfowl, all the birds are in their Sunday best, right? I mean, they're really beautiful this time. They're in their 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 spring plumage is is just absolutely gorgeous. So it's a great time to go look at these birds, isn't it?
1: It really is, and I mean, even your neighbor's duck, the shoveler. Beautiful bird. If you see them in the spring, um, all uh, even the uh, the um, hoot mergansers, beautiful. You know they're all dressed like you said in their finest. And uh, get out there and to your local ponds, your local lakes, and look, get them, check it out. All these birds that you see, because you like you said in the fall, it's hard to tell that they're not quite in there all the way until what is it? Uh, usually the first of the year is when they get their the, all of their uh, their you know the plumage and everything comes mm. back.
0: Yeah, yeah. I talked a little in the last segment. We lost Roger Strand uh, last year. Roger was really, you know, the kind of the the epitome, the heart and soul of the Wood Duck Society. He did so much to to advocate for wood ducks. He wrote a lot of stories in outdoor news over the years about what he called best practices for placing wood ducks, uh, wood duck houses, that is. Uh, do, do you know, can you share a little bit of the history of the Wood Duck Nesting Box program out there? And it's it's been pretty successful, hasn't it?
1: It really has. You know, um, if you go back to the fifties and sixties, when I was a kid in the seventies, even we lost a lot of that old growth woods, you know, where the wood ducks, the hollows and everything else. So in the, about the eight, well, seventies, even the uh, sixties and seventies, Dr. Frank Belrose out of, uh, Illinois and, uh, with, uh, Art Hawkins, they kind of got together and Dr. Belrose came together with this wood duck house. And, uh, It basically uh, uh, they wanted to see if it worked, and it did work. He's down in the southern part of Illinois, that area in there, and uh, it started getting bigger and bigger. And uh, and then of course they started the Wood Duck Society. uh, Art and Frank and a lot of those other biologists, different ones in 1990, and they got the kind of the word out. Well, then all the Boy Scout groups, uh, every different uh, organization these and they saw the the fruits of their uh of their their work and it's just beautiful now i mean there's a guy in the in the california wood duck society he, he roger's good friends with him roger had friends all over the world uh roger stranded and uh he had over 800 boxes out wow. and each this was his uh passion he was retired and he lived in northern california and he Continually in the winter'd make new boxes, replace them, but he would do the uh check out the jumps, try and be there for the jumps, or what they do is like Roger said, the best way to do is see how many birds you had in there that nested uh after of course when the when the hen's gone with the young ones check and see the placentas not the eggs because she eats the shells to bring back her calcium but and uh, this guy had uh, placenta counts all over for uh, i don't know how many hundreds of boxes but it was just amazing you know that uh, and people really like to do this and now with the advent of the camera and roger had over 13 different cameras in 13 different positions around the house and stuff and it's just amazing what what, uh, what a treat it is to have breakfast in the morning, and you got your camera set up in your kitchen, and you got the wood duck house, you know, out by, by the pond or by the wherever, and uh, you can see the actual hen uh, work with the eggs and stuff and getting ready to jump. It's just fantastic.
0: You listen to WCCO Outdoors, Rob Jerisline here. We're talking with John Mulcomber from the Wood Duck Society, a little bit about placing wood duck houses. So there's a lot to get to there. One, you talked about we lost some old-growth forests, and so we lost our cavities. Wood ducks are cavity nesters. They nest in holes in trees traditionally, and we don't have a lot of that kind of habitat anymore. You know, a lot of other ducks, mallards, they nest on the ground. They create nests on the ground or in wetlands. Wood ducks are, go figure, they nest in, in forests and in trees, and these boxes create artificial cavities for them to nest in. Uh, you mentioned Art Hawkins. Last week on this show, we talked about the Aldo Leopold Society and, and the great Aldo Leopold, uh, the professor in Wisconsin. Art Hawkins was one of his grad students, so there's a connection, you know, to, to some great conservation history. And Art was, as you said, one of the guys that helped kind of get this rolling. Uh, a couple of points. My dad, you know, worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and he was always really stringent about the fact that okay, you know, people build wood duck boxes and they feel good about it, but you got to follow best practices. Otherwise, these things can be death traps. You got to make them predator proof. You got to take care of them every year. Uh, if see, we don't want we don't want the sides falling off, right? Otherwise, squirrels get in there or other predators get in there and they and they kill these ducks. They kill the hen so it's a it's a great hobby but it's there, there's a lot of personal responsibility that goes into maintaining these things uh, you agree with that i'm sure
1: oh certainly i know when roger he was basically the one to come up with the pole he i don't know if he himself fell off the ladder going up these trees uh but he said that's enough is enough so he started putting them on the six or seven foot uh poles and uh Away from away from the trees because, like you said, even the squirrels jump from the branches onto the uh houses to try and you know dip their hand down there. They'll either get the eggs or they'll or the raccoon will grab the head of the hen mallard and pull it right out. And these uh the predator guard now really really helps. Uh, um I've got them around uh, all five of mine, and I live right here in the cities here, and they uh, they seem to work pretty good. I've got four out of the five I've had nesting in there, and uh, it's, uh, it works good. I had a friend of mine, Rob, that had his out on the water and that, and that's nice too, but he says, oh, you don't need predator guards out in the water. He says, I've got that white plastic PVC. Well, he said, guess what, John? He said, I had it out there and a, a mink had crawled up mm-hmm. there, like shinnied up there and got inside the boxes and killed the hen. And I said, well, that's what predator guards really do work. And, uh, yeah. the whole idea is, uh, I understand that people, uh, want to put them on trees and... And that's great, and and if it works, it works for them. But uh, boy, that predator guard—so uh, many raccoons around nowadays, and right. uh, and, and possums. Now well, you know everything that you can think of goes after those eggs. Yeah,
0: you're exactly right. I want to point out this week's print edition of Outdoor News, we printed the plans for what we call the best practices, the Wood Duck Challenge. We encourage youth to get involved with that, build a wood duck box, send us your picture. We'd love to print it in Outdoor News. That was on page 16 of this week's edition, outdoornews.com. You can also see it. But we also have a picture of those predator guards to really show how that works because without the predator guard, uh, these things are, they're just not, they're not as efficient as they should be. They're not as practical. So I want to encourage folks to do, uh, to in, employ those predator guards like John was just describing. Uh, you live in White Bear Lake, right? So I want to be clear. This isn't something you got to do out in far western Minnesota or northern Minnesota no. or down in the uh, Mississippi River Valley. Right here in, in the suburbs, there's a lot of folks who put out uh, wood duck boxes and have a lot of success like yourself.
1: Right. I'm just a block from 35E and a block from Highway 96. And we've got a nice overflow pond uh, in the back. And uh, it is actually a, uh, I call it a nursery for, we've got ma- uh, mallards. We've got every kind of, a lot of different ducks, a lot of geese. It's just fun, you know, and, it, and it's right here in the cities, you know, and it's, so wherever you live, I don't care if you've even got a small pond in your backyard and wood ducks. I found out when I was a kid, they, uh, they'll lay their, even find a nesting habitat away from the water. They'll, if they have to, they'll do it. And they'll actually, I've seen them walking all in a row, trying to right to where the water is. So do what you can, but try and get them as close to the water as you can. And there's another thing that I want to bring up too, is if, if you are have a, do have a wood duck box, cut some branches and throw them over the, on the, into the water on the edge. Because what happens then is if there's, Big fish, bass, pike, they just gobble up these little babies like you wouldn't believe, even great blue heron. What happens is that the babies go underneath these branches, and on these branches, a lot of times the uh, uh, insects lay their uh, their eggs, and nymphs, and that's what the little ones will, will pick right off the, the leaves off of there. So do that, too, and that works out great, too, and it's also safe for the babies. They can a place to hide from all these uh snapping turtles and you you name it, you know, go after these uh, little ones.
0: I tell you what, we could spend an entire segment on the importance of creating insects for young birds, uh, wild turkeys as well as ducks. Uh, they, with humans would go out of our way to, we spend a lot of effort killing insects and, and we're having some ramifications for some of these birds. We're about out of time, uh, John, but I wanted to point out, yeah, the the, uh, the camera thing, uh, the video cameras that folks install on in some of these has added a new dimension, made it a lot of fun. I know a number of guys that install these cameras and So they, you know, it used to be you'd, you'd put up the box and just wait until the, the jump, you know, when the when the the uh, the ducklings and, and the hen came out now with some of these cameras you can like you say you can sit be sitting at breakfast watching uh what's happening inside right. the box uh, right on your computer
1: unbelievable but what a great thing that is so it's uh so it's, uh, a lot of fun and the you just the nature itself is is a good thing so that's great but thank you for having me on my friend
0: Yeah, John, you know what, and I didn't spend a lot of time, but you're the president of the Wood Duck Society. Folks can go to Facebook and and find the Wood Duck Society page. You're also former leader of the Duck and Goose Collars Association here in the state, the, the Minnesota Waterfall Association. Both of those are gone now. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of young guys coming up like you that are taking charge and leading some of these nonprofits like you did. Thank you so much, John, for five decades of incredible nonprofit waterfall work on behalf of Minnesota Conservation.
1: Well, Rob, thank you very much. And uh, you get people get out there and watch those wood ducks.
0: <laughs> Good advice, John. Have a great right. week ahead, and I hope you have a great uh, wood duck nesting box season.
1: I do too. Thank you.
0: I right, take care John Mulcomber, president of the Wood Duck Society. Again, like I say, this week's print edition of Outdoor News, we, we included the plans. If there's a young person out there or a grandfather or a grandmother who's thinking, yeah, me and my kids, we need to build some wood duck boxes again. We print these plans every spring, about this time of year, encourage folks to build the boxes, follow those best practices, include those predator guards. Uh, we don't want these boxes to be death traps. We want them to produce the next generation of wood ducks. Uh, for bird watchers to watch, for us to maybe to bag a few in uh, in the in the autumn, uh, because, uh, hey, they taste pretty good, too, in addition to being uh, fun to watch uh, jump out of wood duck boxes this time of year. Uh, with that, I'm going to get in a break. We're going to talk some more hunting. We're going to talk uh, squirrels and rabbits. Hey, folks, you got five days left. Uh, you got until February 29th, so we'll talk about that a little bit. When we return, you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, February 25th, 2024. I am Rob Jerisline, managing editor of a little newspaper called Outdoor News. And like I've noted the past couple weeks, today's the final day of the inland waters walleye season. You can still go out and do some pan fishing, but you can't chase pike or walleye or bass on inland waters anymore. Not a lot of folks chase bass uh, during the winter anyway. And, hey, it's been a tough ice fishing season, so maybe sayonara. Maybe we're all happy that the uh, 2023-2024 winter walleye season is over and we can all look forward to the uh, the May 11th statewide fishing opener. Between now and then, of course, there's some good border water fishing, so uh, there's lots of opportunities to wet a line if you want to keep fishing. Hey, we've talked a lot about how it's been a tough ice fishing season, but we've still got a few days left, believe it or not, of some hunting going on. And here to talk about that a little bit is my old friend Tony Peterson who joins us periodically. Tony, how are you doing? Been quite a winter, huh?
2: It has been a weird winter, man. It's I know I know we still have a little time to chase some rabbits and some bunnies out there, but it feels real weird. Kind of being in like a light jacket and no snow, it's it's pretty bizarre, man.
0: Exactly, yeah. I mean, you could go tromp around and chase rabbits and squirrels through this Thursday, February 29th. A little bonus day here because it's a leap year. It's, it's easy walking, right? And uh, I don't know, is it is it harder to see them? There's no snow. There, these cottontails, bunnies, and the, and the gray squirrels are not gonna they're not gonna pop quite as much against a uh, a brown background, are they?
2: No, but I, ha- I haven't been rabbit hunting a whole lot, but the squirrel thing is. They're they're pretty active. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you, you kind of get a bonus there. You're not running into those super cold days where everything seems to be kind of holding tight. You see that you see that quite a bit with squirrels and rabbits where, you know, typical super cold weather this time of year. They're not very active, but you get that sun out and it gets warmer. And of course, this year, I mean, the conditions are insane. So there's I mean, it makes up for it activity wise a little bit.
0: I should introduce Tony a little better than I did. You can uh, read him in multiple places, but probably uh, com is where uh, people are most likely to see your byline. Mostly writing about deer, but you, you tackle some other topics, too, right, Tony?
2: Turkeys, small game, some Western stuff. I actually started writing some camping things and just fishing, too. So,
0: Gotcha. I think way back, I mean, before you and I were even probably doing a lot of hunting or fishing ourselves squirrel hunting rabbit hunting they they were much more popular sports weren't they across the the central part of the country i i I know if you look back in old field and stream magazines from the the 50s and 60s there was a lot of content dedicated to rabbit hunting back then it kind of fell off didn't it
2: it did and i don't i don't really know why but i think i think part of it has something to do with how obsessed we are with trophy hunting Mm -hmm. you know and i mean it's the deer thing has kind of taken over and, you know, it's it's become sort of a year-round thing for a lot of people to, you know, babysit the deer on their place. And I think that some of this, you know, traditional kind of less appealing stuff like small game hunting has just fallen to the wayside. But it's it's so fun and such a good way to learn about the woods.
0: Yeah, I think you answered the question there pretty well. I'm not even sure if you realized you, you answered it. There weren't very many deer back in the 50s and 60s, yeah. were there? And there's a ton of deer now, even though uh, you know some of us rant and rave about deer hunting not being as good. I don't know if you saw. I wrote a column, I think, a couple of months ago where I pointed out that these so-called low deer kill years that we're having right now would have been all-time records as recently as, like, 1989. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, and and Bill Parker, my Michigan editor, wrote a column recently about how uh, he was going through some old archives of another old magazine, and there was some county, I think it was in the northern lower peninsula of Michigan, where uh, there was like this news note about the first deer being seen, it was probably from the 1930s or 40s, but it was like the first deer seen in decades in this certain area, and how now, you know, it's a bad year when they only kill a couple thousand deer in that county, you know. Uh, i think we take for granted all the deer that we do have even in so-called bad years
2: well right i mean i have a i have a pretty good buddy who lives in southeastern minnesota where i grew up you know the hunting down there is really good you know a lot of deer Mm -hmm. and he and i hunt northern wisconsin together and we we talk about it a lot about how you know we make we joke about how hard it is you know you're in wolf country and the winters can knock them back but even up there if we put in our effort we always kill deer yeah. You know, I mean, you're not seeing, you know, eight or ten a night, you know, you might blank for a couple of days, but you still have pretty good opportunities out there, even when it's, you know, not like prime ground, prime habitat. So we're, we're pretty lucky that way.
0: One more deer point. Uh, I want to get back to rabbits and squirrels, but this winter bodes very well for white-tailed deer across the region, correct? I mean, the, the does are going to be dropping doubles and triplets uh, this spring, I got to think. Uh, and if we can do this again next winter, the, the deer population across this region really going to bounce back. Uh, do you agree?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think this is, I'm really curious to see what the, the fawn situation looks like this year and just what the general deer population looks like. Because it's, you know, the, the deer that I shot, you know, up and through probably mid-December this past season, tons of fat in, in great condition. I mean, they're browsing when, you know, a lot of a lot of years they would have been, right to a destination food source because it was kind of the only option. So it's it'll be interesting. It should be really good for the deer especially in the north country.
0: Yeah, they're just not having to work very hard, right? They don't have to paw down through the through the snow and it's easier for them to evade predators up in north country too. A uh, deep snow is bad for deer because wolves are can usually stay on top of it. That's not the situation. It's 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 easier for deer to evade wolves and coyotes or whatever else.
2: Right. And if you think about just the, the pure calorie burn of being out there mm-hmm. yep. in deep snow and cold, cold weather they haven 't had that, and neither have the predators so it's it it'll be really interesting to see how this how this affects them
0: absolutely w c c o outdoors rob juline chatting with our friend Tony Peterson. appreciate him joining us for a segment so let 's get back to squirrels and rabbits, like we say that season continues through the end of february so just uh, a few more days through this thursday february 29th we got a couple rabbit species here don't we we got the cottontails ubiquitous uh, in the southern two-thirds of the state and then they are old friend the snowshoe hare up north you like to get up there and chase those uh, those big guys don't you
2: snowshoes are fun man i like them a lot you know they don't go underground like a cottontail does but also they're just it's just where they live is cool you know like being in the big woods up north and they're just kind of it's a neat hunt i think
0: and they're uh they're hares, so they change color don't they they're white yep. this time of year we got a few jackrabbits too not many but they're you know we do have jackrabbits in western minnesota i've seen a couple over the years and and they also change color don't they with the season
2: yeah they do i've bumped into a few of them in the last you know maybe 10 years while pheasant hunting with my dogs out there and it's always it's always cool because they're, you know, I mean, you can go years and years without seeing one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're big. Uh, you always kind of do a double tape when you see a, a big old jackrabbit take off. So tell us a little bit about some of the tactics you employ, uh, specifically with rabbits. Maybe we'll talk cottontails here. If you were going to go out these last few days of the season, how would you approach that, Tony?
2: Just get in where it's thick. I mean, it. you know, normally we go... Where it's you know if you're looking at it and you don't really want to wade into the cover it's a pretty good idea to wade in there and look for rabbit sign because they leave so much sign Mm -hmm. you know this is a little bit different this year like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to look for them a little more they're not gonna be just pushed into like the best cover and so this is this is a little different scenario if you got a couple buddies that you know can work together and kind of push a line through some cover it'd be a good idea
0: what do you carry a 22 or one of these little 17s do you stick to a rifle or what are you using
2: um it depends how we're hunting them if i'm if i'm solo and just sneaking along in the afternoon i'll carry a 17 usually mm-hmm. but if I, a couple of buddies are getting together we'll carry 20 gauges and shoot light trap loads right because uh, right. that's otherwise you know i i grew up on small game like crazy, and I mean, I, I just about made myself deaf when I got a twenty-two pistol because I carry it and try to shoot rabbits with it running, and it was just a, <laughs> it, it, just not the tool for the job, right? You know. Mm-hmm. And so, if we if we get together and we're serious about it, and we want some rabbits to eat. We'll carry the twenty gauges and try to try to put a few down.
0: I got out last year with some falconers chasing rabbits, and they actually. you know, I thought we were going to drive like to Western Minnesota. No, these guys. They were using their red-tailed hawks and their other falcons just west of the metro, uh, and and they actually like that suburban area, areas with cars, with a lot of shrubs, with trails, because it's great habitat. Yep. And they were joking how sometimes the metro area, by the late in the season, it gets kind of kind of low on rabbits because they've been hunting them so hard. I was shocked to know that, but I guess logically it makes sense, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, there's a, there's a place not too far from my house that. The county bought uh, – it's it's a chunk of public land now. But when they bought it, it was full of rabbits and squirrels. But, you know, I mean, the small game hunting pressure is real high in there. And I, I happen to have a buddy who lives on the boundary, and he's got 17 acres. And, you know, I think it was maybe three years after they opened it up to public hunting, he, I was talking to him, and he's like, man, I have never seen so many hawks in my yard, like posted up in my trees. I'm like, yeah, probably because all their food got pushed out into your yard now.
0: Yeah. You got any uh, top recipes you use for rabbit or, or squirrels?
2: When I was in college, I cooked my way through school, and I actually worked <laughs> at a restaurant that had rabbit on the menu down in Rochester. And the way we cooked them, and this is the way I always cook rabbits now, is you take apple cider and brown sugar, and you start to heat that up, and it eventually starts to caramelize, and you cook your your chunks of rabbit. You know, you piece out the, the back legs and the back straps and whatever, you cook them in there and then serve them over mashed potatoes mm. with some asparagus and then usually cut up some slices of apple with it. And it's like a, it, I've tried it with every kind of wild game meat. It works really good with rabbits and it works really good with antelope for some reason, but it's terrible for whitetails. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, it's a simple, it kind of seems kind of fancy. You know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you're not caramelizing apple cider in a lot of, you know, a Tuesday night meal usually, right? But that's a pretty good way to do it and it is real simple.
0: I guess bottom line there's a few days left. Days are long. There's not a lot going on out there. If you've ever considered rabbit or squirrel hunting, this would be this would be the year, uh, these final few days, huh?
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Good. Well, Tony, thanks a lot for uh, for checking in with me.
2: And I appreciate you having me on. We'll
0: have a great week ahead. You too. Tony Peterson, appreciate him joining us on the broadcast. Uh, let's get in a break. We'll have more of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob line with you for the final few minutes of this week's broadcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll like I said, I'm going to wrap up in a few minutes, then stay tuned for 60 minutes. And then from 7 to 9 p.m., Joe Tamburino with the weekend wind down here on WCCO. I uh, mentioned we got. It's really getting into the. We've been in the heart of show season for a while, but we got some big ones coming up in the next few weeks. We got Pheasant Fest next weekend out in Sioux Falls, March first to third. That was in Minneapolis last year, but it, it travels around. To, goes to Sioux Falls, and then every third year it goes somewhere else, like Omaha or some you know some other city. Uh, but Sioux Falls and Minneapolis are kind of the main uh, the main locations for that event. Uh, then the Dinner Turkey Classic in two weeks. Uh, that's always a fun one. And, you know, the timing of that show, it's always 60 days, at least 60 days after the dry-down period. So, folks, uh, you know, they shoot a deer, and then you have to, the antlers have to dry down for 60 days before you get that final official score. And so that's why the timing of that show happens in March. It's a great event. If you if you shot a nice buck last year, or any buck, and you want to get it scored, I know the Minnesota official measures are at that event. Uh, that's down at uh, Canterbury in Shakopee. So that's, uh, that's two weeks away. Northwest Sports Show, man, the big one. Uh, that is uh, at the Minneapolis Convention Center in three weeks, March 14th to 17th. That runs four days, Thursday through Sunday. I'm forgetting if I'm missing any after that, other than they got that, as I mentioned, that Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous, uh, which will also be at the Convention Center April 18th to 20th. So a number of uh, big events uh, coming up here. And like, like I say, with uh, some of the hunting season is going to be over and the ice fishing season done across a wide swath of the state, might be a good year to uh, participate in a sports show a final news item I see the uh, the NRA the National Rifle Association that the ruling came down in New York that was late on Friday and a jury declaring that the former executive director Wayne LaPierre uh, must repay almost four point four million dollars I believe another former executive owes a couple million dollars also you know, it's been kind of interesting watching that play out. I mean, the narrative among a lot of uh, the, the shooting enthusiasts has been that this was a witch hunt by the AG out there, that Latita James. It seems like I'm hearing less of that now as the details of this case come out. I know I had a letter to the editor from in one of my papers, someone saying, you know, hey, I've been a longtime member. I've spent a lot of money with this organization, and I don't like, uh, you know, seeing... You know, money misspent uh, or, or 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 used for frivolous things, and and uh, you know, like I say, some of these executives having to repay the, the organization itself. Uh, I think uh, I think some of the old rank and file agree with uh, with the fact that that money needs to be repaid. Um, reading this AP story about it that we have at outdoornews.com, apparently, you know, the the group has cut back on a number of its uh, traditional activities like. Uh, training and education, recreational shooting, and law enforcement initiatives. I hope that I hope the organization is able to get back to some of those things. That's that's the NRA that I, that I grew up with. With that, hey, we're out of time. I sure I appreciate everybody joining us here for the past hour. Looking forward to being back with you next week. I know I've got a lot of great topics. Everybody have a great week out of doors. Rob Jersine signing off for WCCO Outdoors.